welcome to the Nerd Party. Hello, welcome to Throwback Paperback. We're a new podcast on the Nerd Party Network, and we're going to be reading young adult literature. I'm one of the co-hosts for this pod. My name is Charles Sheeland, and I'm here with my other host, Asia Bonilla. Hi, everyone. So we're both professional dancers, and we're best friends, and we're both avid readers. We've been thinking about doing something like this for a while, sharing certain books with each other, but we figured why not share them with other people as well, so we're going to kind of meet like a virtual book club. We decided to do young adult books because we thought it would be cool to reread books from our childhood to experience the nostalgia and read new books that we never got to read when we were younger. To start, we're going to focus on books and series that one of us has read beforehand and the other has not. That way we can get the different perspectives of reading a book for the first time versus rereading it and remembering plot points we may have forgotten. So the way we're going to run each episode will be divided into three parts. We'll have a brief intro, our first impressions of the reading, and then a discussion. In the intro, the person who contributed the book to our list will give a tiny bit of background, say when they first read it and why they want to share it with the other one. Then the co-host who is new will quickly summarize the main plot points of the reading. We'll be sharing the reading for each week on our sites and social media and other accounts so you'll always know which chapters to read before each podcast. Then we'll share our first impressions of the reading. And finally, we'll get into a discussion, talk about any and everything, different topics that we both wanted to mention, and then get into listener questions and comments. So without further ado, Asia, you suggested our first series, Percy Jackson and the Olympians by Rick Riordan. We read chapters one through eight of book one, The Lightning Thief. So why this book? So we decided to read this book because I've only read this book series one time when I was in the sixth grade. And in my, at my elementary school, we did a simulation about Greek history. So it was kind of fitting for that time period for me because I was learning about all the kinds of, and because I've only read this book one time, I remember the basic storyline and plot, but I don't remember a lot of the details. So why not, Charles, go ahead and give us the summary of the first eight chapters we read? Sure, so I'll get into the summary. In chapter one, we meet Percy, who's a troubled kid at a school for troubled kids, and he goes on a field trip. His teacher attacks him. His other teacher throws him a sword, and Percy defeats his bad teacher, and then everyone pretends that nothing crazy has happened. This continues in chapter two. Percy, though, is leaving school. He was kicked out. Summer holidays. He and his best friend Grover are on their way back to New York City. And Grover is sort of admitting that something's up, but he's not really actually saying anything. Chapter three, we meet Percy's mom, Sally. She's great. We meet his dad, his stepdad, who was awful. Percy and his mom drive out to Montauk on Long Island. And there are some discussions about Percy's biological father, but nothing concrete. All of a sudden, there's a hurricane. Grover shows up on Long Island. He's actually a satyr, a half-human, half-goat, and they all decide to run to a summer camp that Percy's dad wanted Percy to go to, but Percy's mom didn't want him to go to. More details soon. 
Chapter 4. The three are being chased by a minotaur towards Camp Half-Blood, but right before, which is the summer camp. Right before they get into the camp, the car spins off the road. They fight the minotaur, but the minotaur actually crushes Percy's mom. She sort of dissolves into golden dust. And then Percy manages to snap off its horn and stab the minotaur. It dissolves, and Percy and Grover make it across into the camp. Chapter 5. We get a bit of an introduction and a welcome to Camp Half-Blood. Turns out, Percy's favorite teacher from his school, Mr. Brunner, is actually a centaur named Chiron, and the camp is run by the Greek god Dionysus, Mr. D. So we find out that the Greek gods are true, real, immortal beings. Chapter 6, we learn more about Camp Half-Blood, we meet some more characters. Percy is placed in Cabin 11 for Hermes, the god of travelers temporarily until we find out who his actual father or who his father is. Chiron and Annabeth, who is a camper, show Percy around, introducing more people, and Clarice, who is a camper, daughter of Ares, attacks Percy. She tries to stuff his head down a toilet, but the toilet seemed to explode and drench Clarice, leaving Percy dry. Chapter 7, More Exposition. We chat with Luke, who is another camper, and there's a lot of discussions about tradition and operations and a lot of hints about prophecy. Chapter 8. Percy does a pretty good job at sword fighting, and then he's used as a decoy in Capture the Flag to distract Clarice. But he gets cut during Capture the Flag, but it's revealed that his wounds were healed while he was standing in water. And then a trident appears above him, in this water, and it's revealed that Percy is, in fact, the son of Poseidon. And that's where we got in the reading so far. I'm going to go ahead and say my first impressions right away. The thing that I noticed most of all is that the story is told from first person. The books I read nowadays generally are not from first person, so that was a jarring adjustment, and as I was reading it, I kept finding myself shocked that the story is told from Percy's perspective. And in fact, the first few paragraphs are actually Percy speaking directly to the reader. And there are a couple other instances as well where he sort of does that. In the very beginning, he tells us that he's talking to us, and that was just something that I've not experienced lately while reading. As I mentioned, Asia and I are both dancers, and in dance and theater, there's a term for when the actors or the people on stage acknowledge and speak directly to the audience. It's called breaking the fourth wall, and that's kind of what Percy does at the very beginning of the book, and while I'm super used to that in the performing arts, I can't remember the last time I read a book where one of the characters spoke directly to me. So that was my first and most lasting impression of the reading was the jarring adjustment. I didn't mind it, but it was definitely something that I had to adjust to first. In contrast to Charles, I also noticed the first person, but I am more used to reading books that are usually in first person. But I was surprised at how Percy does break the fourth wall, and it's almost as if he's talking to us throughout the story. There's specific lines where he'll be referencing to you, the reader, as if you were in the situation with him. And I think that really speaks to how this book is made for children or younger teenagers. 
another first impression I had was something that I did not remember that the setting was in New York, which is kind of funny because I grew up in Southern California and I feel like as a child, when you read stories and watch movies, sometimes you just think everything happens where you're from. So that's just something I didn't notice the first time. So that was something nice to reread and remember. I quickly want to throw in here that Asia and I went to undergrad together in New York City. So the story takes place, starts in upstate New York, goes through the Upper East Side and moves out to Long Island. And so that's just been a little bit of a treat for me reading it, that it takes place in the area where we became friends and where our friendship started. So it's a cute way to start our podcast, um, you know, where our friendship started. Yeah, for sure. I think we can get into a bit of a discussion now. Something I want to start with is something that I appreciated a lot is the world building. In fantasy, we have to create a world for, or the author has to create a world for the readers, and we have to set some parameters in fantasy for it to be believable or enjoyable, or we need to have some rules, and that's something that authors do by world building. And for example, in the book, we find out that Camp Half-Blood grows strawberries and they use the strawberries to pay rent for this huge amount of property they have. And then that ties into the fact that Dionysus is the god of grapes and wine. So he's good at growing strawberries and therefore they have enough strawberries to pay rent. It's small things like that that just sort of explain the world and explain the rationale and the operations of the world. This is a low fantasy series. Low fantasy meaning that the series takes place in our human world. It's not in a fictitious world, for example, Middle Earth, like Lord of the Rings. So we need to have some rules to ground this experience. And I will probably notice a couple world building things throughout because those are things that I look for in a reading, in a book. And I'm very appreciative of them when I find them. So I just wanted to start with that. Yeah, exactly. Something I noticed in chapter six was as Chiron's going around showing Percy the property of Camp Half-Blood, Percy notices that there's no coverings, everything's kind of out in the open, and he asks, what do they do when it rains? And Chiron makes this weird, gives um, Percy this weird look, and I just thought that was weird because he doesn't give any kind of explanation and just moves on with the tour. And for me, I do not remember why, like, I don't remember there being a reason why it doesn't matter if it rains. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was interesting and something I have no idea what that is. So hopefully we'll learn in the next couple of chapters about that. And there you go. I didn't even notice that. I mean, when I was reading this, I probably just assumed that it took place in California or... Hawaii, where there are outdoor schools. I'm from the East Coast originally, so we don't have weather like that. All of our schools are indoors. Uh, so yeah, I was just projecting, and now we can track that, I guess. 
but how you're saying how if it was in California, because I remember that it was specifically in New York where they have bad weather, I was like, oh, I specifically noticed it, I feel like, this time because I was more aware of the setting. And there we are, and I just made a childish mistake, assuming it's in California, even though we just discussed the fact that it's on Long Island. (laughs) Am I, in fact, an adult reading this book? Just kind of sounded like a child. Speaking of tracking, keeping track of things in the text, I want to track which god has which cabin. I feel like the cabins are going to be a staple of the Camp Half-Blood experience, and the campers all are in cabins that are going to tell us something about their personality. So I wanted to track our 12 cabins. Again, we have 12 cabins for the 12 Olympians. Those are the 12 major Greek gods. Of course, Hades, god of the underworld, does not get his own cabin because he doesn't have any demigods. So we start with cabin number one, Zeus. Has to be empty because Zeus is a big three god and he's not allowed to have illegitimate half-children. Cabin number two is Hera, his wife, goddess of marriage, so obviously hers has to be empty because she definitely wouldn't even want to have illegitimate children. Cabin three is Poseidon's. That's the one with all the seashells. It smells like salt water, and that one is empty too because, again, Poseidon is a big three, so he's not allowed to have half-children. We don't know who's in cabin four. We know cabin five is Ares. That's where Clarice lives. And cabin six is Athena. That's where Annabeth lives. We don't know who's in cabin seven. We know that Artemis is cabin eight. And that one is empty because Artemis was a sworn virgin. So she obviously wouldn't have had any children. We don't know who's in nine or ten. We know 11 is for Hermes. And so that's where all new campers start. Starting such as Percy. As well as Hermes' actual children like Luke. And then 12 is Dionysus or Mr. D. That's his cabin. So the ones we're missing are 4, 7, 9, and 10. And the gods, the Olympians that we're missing are Demeter, Apollo, Aphrodite, and Hephaestus. And we know a couple things about these cabins. So 4 we know is covered in vines. So I'm willing to bet that that's Demeter's cabin because Demeter is the god of, goddess of agriculture So I would expect that her cabin would be covered in grass and vines. That makes perfect sense. And we know that cabin number nine has a smokestack and it looks like a factory. So that feels like it should be Hephaestus's cabin, god of metalworking. We also know that cabin seven is solid gold. So I expect that that probably is Apollo's, but I'm not sure. Again, we still don't know about seven or ten. We have Apollo and Aphrodite, and I could be wrong about my other guesses, but we're going to track it. This is totally my kind of thing is to track these things, and we will keep you updated as we find out if we find out. I love how you want to keep track of all the house cabins, whereas the only thing I thought as we were reading the descriptions was, I wonder which god or goddess I'd have as my parent, and I know same as when I was a child. I would want to be a daughter of Poseidon because, first of all, we've already seen, like, the cool powers Percy gets, and I think it would be also pretty cool to be um, a child of the big three. So that would be me, but what about you, Charles? While I'd like to say that I would be a son of Poseidon, I love the idea of that too. Water is my favorite element, and yes, super cool powers, but... 
I'm not even a water sign, and that's not really realistic with my personality. And you know this about me, and I'm sure the listeners will find out too. And the fact that I tracked the house cabins is probably a pretty good indicator that I would probably be the son of Athena. Wisdom, learning, very much my thing. I'm a Ravenclaw when it comes to Harry Potter. And Athena always has a plan. That was the Annabeth line from chapter eight. Totally resonated with me. So even though I like the idea of being from an extra powerful house or cabin, I think realistically I would probably fall into cabin six Athena. And also Athena is the goddess of war. So, hey, I still got some powers, but I think that's probably the most accurate for me. Yeah, that sounds like you. While we're on the topic of parents and who our demigod parents would be, I want to talk about Percy's mom for a second because we meet Percy's mom in chapter three. In chapter four, she was crushed, physically crushed in front of him. And that is a pretty traumatic event for anybody. But then you have to consider Percy. Percy has no friends, essentially no friends. He doesn't know his dad. He hates his stepdad. His mom is the only person he likes, and he really likes her. And she's physically crushed in front of him. And I think that's probably one of the indicators where this book is really geared towards a younger audience, because while it's addressed, and Percy does think about his mom every other chapter, and we do hear indications about, like, oh, he might go into the underworld to get her back, like, there's definitely allusions to that. It's not really addressed in the deep-set psychological way that losing a parent is, and I think that that's because this is for a younger audience. But I want to know what you think, Asia, because as I was reading it, I was in shock that his mom was gone and that, yeah, well, now he's canoeing and sword fighting and archery. So I want to know what you think. Yeah, I know that was a lot. Uh, I definitely didn't remember us losing Percy's mom so early on in the book, but yeah, it was it was a lot, and for Percy, who's pretty much been alone his entire life because, as it's discussed, he's gone to different boarding schools every single year, so he doesn't even spend the entire school year with his mother. He only would see her during school breaks, so I can't even imagine how hard that would be on someone so young at only the age of 12. Um, and I think that also speaks to when he is placed in um, – cabin 11 the cabin of hermes he really kind of enjoys it because he finally has a family and even though there's lots of different kids it's like okay he's part of this group now and he really looks up to luke who kind of has starting to serve as like a mentor figure as he starts teaching him how to sword fight and stuff so i think that that is really important to him even though another thing to notice to note about cabin 11 that uh, I do remember being important is when Percy first goes into cabin 11 with the Minotaur horn, he says how he's looking for a place to put his things. And he remembers that Hermes is also the God of thieves and that he should also be careful because not everyone can be trusted in the cabin. And I just think that's something important to note for that. Well, I can track it. I'm sure I'll be tracking many things, and I'm happy to track the God of Thieves incidents. I mean, we already had some 
you mentioned the one about Percy not wanting to leave the Minotaur horn because he thought it was going to get stolen. Yeah. And Luke very openly says that he stole toiletries for Percy. And Percy is like, hmm, I wonder if he's being serious. And then he's like, oh, wait, Hermes is the god of thieves. He probably is being serious. But I'm happy to track it. We'll keep an eye out for any thievery, stuff like that. And I think that that's a good point to bring up. I think that that's going to be something, again, this is my prediction. I haven't read the books before. But I think that the characteristics of the demigod's parents are going to trickle down into them. And we've already seen that Ares is a god of war and fighting, and Clarice is very aggressive, and Athena is goddess of wisdom and learning, and we have Annabeth, who is probably the smartest, most self-aware camper we've had yet. And Luke, like we've said, thieving, enterprising. And I think that speaks to the book being aimed at a younger audience, because I don't want to say that it makes the characters one-sided, but I do think that the traits that we associate with their parents will probably carry over into them as demigods. And I think that's fitting for a younger audience where having sort of monolithic traits about characters will make them a little more palatable, maybe slightly less complex. I expect that Annabeth will probably be the wise, smart person for the entire duration of the series. And again, I could be wrong, but I think that that's what I've gotten so far, and I'm expecting to see that that pans out that way, slash I will continue to track that as well. And since I brought up characters, I wanted to ask you if any characters particularly resonated with you or didn't resonate with you. I want to know if there are ones that you jat that you vibed with or you didn't vibe with. So why don't you take this one? As far as characters who resonated with me, um, hmm, I think I really enjoy Percy's character because as soon as he gets to camp, he's expected to be this hero and Annabeth keeps um, mentioning that there's this chosen one and she's assuming it's him and Percy has no idea what's going on and he's just been thrown into this situation and really doesn't understand uh, what his role in it is at all. Um, so I think that's really interesting, especially because throughout Percy does kind of show some a couple hero traits, such as when he learns how to sword fight with Luke, he's naturally able to do the, what is it called? The, yes, the disarming technique. Um, and he's e- easily able to disarm Luke, a trained swordsman or whatever. And so I think that is something, as well as um, at the very beginning of the book, when Mrs. Dodds, tries to kill him, he, Chiron throws him the pen that turns into a sword and he just kills this thing he's never seen before, a monster he's never experienced for. And then the biggest scene when he kills the Minotaur and how it's unexplainable how he can do these things. And I just think that's really interesting and very typical, obviously, of like a hero. But I don't know, I, I enjoyed that, that it's like he doesn't know what's going on, we don't know what's going on, and we're all like learning together. Sorry, before I answer my own question, I was a little distracted during your response because 
I mean, you could tell because we were on Zoom and so you knew what my face was saying, but I was very distracted thinking about Harry Potter. And when you were talking about archetypal elements of a hero, sort of a hero having skills that they innately have and the reader has been given no reason as to why they're good at them. So you mentioned Percy with the sword fighting and Harry, you know, the first time he flies in Sorcerer's Stone, he, the reader doesn't know that his dad was an expert flyer. So we don't know why Harry's really good at it. So one, you made me think about Harry Potter with that. And then disarming Expelliarmus, obviously. Of course. Anyway, getting back to Percy Jackson and my own question, which I asked you about resonating characters unsubscribingly unsurprisingly the character that resonated with me the most was definitely Annabeth. We've already established that I would be a cabin six and that the wisdom learning, etc., is my personality. Plus I think that I've also mentioned that I appreciate the world building and I feel like Annabeth's role so far has been a lot of exposition and world building. And as a reader, that's satisfying to read and hear. And so the fact that it's coming up from that character probably makes me like that character more because they are sort of fleshing out the story for me or fleshing out the background so that I can dive into the world. So I think that's probably why Annabeth has resonated with me so well so far. Yeah, I just wanted to toss in there about... um the female sidekick really quick. Um, Just the idea that Annabeth, from what I remember, she does serve a very large role. And you did mention you brought up Harry Potter and it kind of reminds me of the Hermione Granger character because it's kind of like, like in Harry Potter, Harry is a hero and stuff, but he kind of couldn't get there if he didn't have his friends with him, I feel like. So I think it's going to be a similar uh, storyline from what I remember in this series as well. You guys can't see me because this is a podcast, but I'm nodding my head vigorously about Harry not being able to make it if he didn't have Hermione. But we're talking about Percy Jackson right now. The Nerd Party actually has a Harry Potter podcast called Owl Post, which I love. So if you want to talk Harry Potter, head over there. We're going to do a couple other books before we get to Harry Potter. But... I want to go back to Percy Jackson and world building. As you can tell by now, it's something I like a lot and I'm going to be tracking. Something that I really appreciated was the Roman gods versus Greek gods. Because if you go back to the first few chapters, Mr. Brunner is Percy's Latin teacher. But he's teaching Percy about Greek mythology, which is actually incorrect. The Latin teacher should be teaching Roman mythology. And... At first, I was annoyed for the first few chapters. I just chopped it up to being a plot hole. I was like, oh, this is just a mistake. And it's a child, it's a younger audience book. No one else will know. No one else will care. And I was just willing to accept that and be slightly disappointed. But we actually get an explanation for it. And Chiron, Mr. Brenner, actually Chiron, explains that the Roman gods are the same gods as the Greek gods. Jupiter is Zeus. But they move Mount Olympus to the center of the Western world, or the heart of Western culture, I believe they said that. 
I can't remember the exact wording. But either way, I appreciated the nuance and the detail of that, that the teacher who was teaching Roman and Greek gods interchangeably, that was appropriate because for the context of this world, Greek and Roman gods are interchangeable. And it made me feel happier about the book. It made me feel like it was more nuanced and more thoughtful because it was what I thought. I thought it was a plot point, a plot hole, but then it was actually corrected, which made me really, really happy. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that was really important to put into it and very uh, mature and completing the story, especially for something that's geared more towards children. I think we've arrived at our big moment, end of chapter eight, Percy, Poseidon. Percy is revealed to be the son of Poseidon. Biggest moment in the book so far. You start us off. Take it away. Okay, so I know that I wasn't surprised by this. I remember this moment specifically. And I remember when we were choosing the chapters, I double-checked and I was like, this is the perfect spot to stop for the first episode because obviously the big reveal happens then. I do know that I did remember it a little bit differently. And I think I might've just gotten certain scenes mixed up because I remember the final scene being a little bit more uh, dramatic or heroic in Percy's sense, as opposed to, you know, he walks into the water and it heals him and then the trident appears and that's when he's revealed to be the son of Poseidon. But there were, in my opinion, I also already knew, but there are lots of indicators throughout the first couple of chapters pointing to this, such as, I mean, there's lots of references to just the color blue. He talks about how his mother, they have this thing where she makes all the food blue, which blue, water, sea god, that makes sense. As well as throughout, Percy has a lot of unexplained incidences and kind of unexplained power when he gets near water, such as um, when they're at visiting the Met Museum and he somehow pushes Nancy Boba Fett in the fountain outside of the museum without ever touching her. He's like, I don't even know how it happened, but somehow she's in the water. And obviously the big toilet scene when he, uh, the kids from the Aries cabin are bullying him and trying to push his head into the toilet and they all get attacked by the water and he ends up sitting in the only dry spot in the entire bathroom. Um, and then obviously the final scene when he gets into the water and he's once again fighting the kids of the Aries cabin. And as soon as he gets in the water, he finds the strength, he finds the skill to beat all of them. So I definitely, I saw it coming. I would like to hear what Charles thought since he had never read it before though. Yeah, obviously, because this was new to me, I had a completely different experience than you did. But I knew there was emphasis on Percy's parents because obviously we don't know who his dad is and we get to Camp Half-Blood and Annabeth keeps asking whether he's the chosen one or not. And she's like, I wonder if he's one of the big three. And we're like, well, then he probably is one of the big three. It's a bit of a Chekhov's gun to bring it up. But so I knew we were looking for Percy's parents. But I just figured that it was going to take the whole first book to figure out who Percy's dad was. There are five books in this series. I was like, well, you can knock out a whole book that way. I'm sure there'll be other plot points. But it would not make, I wouldn't have been surprised if the whole first book had sort of been anchored around Percy finding his identity. 
And, but I did also notice some of the things you mentioned and I noticed some more. Um, so in the summary, I said that the first thing Percy was good at was sword fighting. And that's not actually accurate. The first thing that he's good at when he gets to Camp Half-Blood is canoeing. But he sort of brushes that aside because he's like, that's not a hero's characteristic. But if you know he's the son of the storm and water god, it makes perfect sense that he'd be good at canoeing. And then the biggest indicator for me was that his mom met his dad and they spent their summer together on Montauk. Montauk is a beach town on Long Island. And she meets his dad on the beach. Like That is the number one indicator that he is the son of the water god to me. So I want to give you and the listeners my experience of reading chapter eight, because like I said, we'd had all these hints that Percy's parents were important, but I'm reading chapter eight. I'm taking notes. I've noted all these indicators, but, or these strange things because I was just noting them generally. And then I was thinking about them when he got into chapter eight. And so sort of halfway through capture the flag, I was like, you know what? I'm ready to place a bet. I think that he's going to be Poseidon's son because of X, Y, and Z reason. Um, But I figured out the whole book. How are they going to stretch this out for a whole book? Like, I figured out the whole plot point. It's going to be really boring. And then, lo and behold, it was just revealed to us. I was just wrong. So it was completely shocking, but also very satisfying because we had had those indicators. And if you were tracking them, if you did notice them, it makes you enjoy the reveal so much more because you're like, "Ah, I saw it coming. And yes, this was a hint that was placed So I really appreciated that, but uh, I thought it was going to be way later in the book. So I was totally shocked when it came. Yeah. I I think it's funny, though, that you thought it was going to take the whole book because, I mean, I don't remember when I first read it if I would have thought that. But yeah, that's interesting. But I'm glad it wasn't because it makes it more exciting now. But Oh, yeah. I'm right there with you. I think it's way more exciting that we know that he is Poseidon's son. And now I have no idea what's coming next, but it'll be exciting. And I'm excited for it. I just said exciting so many times. I think that's a good place for us to end today. Yeah, I think that's perfect. Um, But we'll be back next week with the next set of chapters. We're going to be reading chapters 9 through 15, if you'd like to read along with us. Um, But you can stay in touch with us on the Nerd Party website, just head over to nerdparty.com slash contact and select throwback paperback. You can send us an email there and get in touch with the network on Twitter at joinnerdparty or on Instagram at the Nerd Party. And you can also reach me on Instagram at asia.bonia or on Twitter at asiabonia. Yep, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at cesheeland on both of those. We're a new podcast, so make sure that if you enjoyed this, you rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends. I'm sure you know this, but for podcast apps and the algorithms that display podcasts, the more reviews and the higher star ratings a show has, the more likely it is to rise in the listings. So make sure that you review it and subscribe, share it with your friends, and join us again next week. We always give the summary, so if you have reread it, if you've read it, you don't even have to reread if you don't want to, though you totally can. But share it around and make sure you check out all the other great podcasts on the Nerd Party Network. 
yeah, thank you everyone for joining us and we'll see you next week. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.